0: The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal business tax or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see A16Z.com slash disclosures.
1: I got a quick uh, um, Bostock question that doesn't quite belong in the main thing, I don't think, which is, uh, you know, there's this thing that public companies have done left and and then actually I guess Stripe is doing it too, which is um, rather than giving four year grants, they give four one year grants and it it's because of the way ISS does the dilution calculation. Um, and I was just wondering, has that showed up like competitively at all in recruiting employees or is it just like some weird ass thing that public companies need to do that doesn't affect private companies?
0: I haven't seen it. I don't know, Sanjit, if you have. Okay.
2: No, we haven't run into it. I think people are thinking about their packages roughly the same way as before.
0: Yeah. Okay, good. You know, I I, I can tell you all the crazy because, you know, our strategy at Airbox is when it comes to R&D, we compete directly for Google and Facebook kind of employees. We want to go for top of market. We pay, you know, we officially pay 90th percentile plus for that talent, you know. it's uh, So we're going sort of head to head against them and paying up. Uh, so I've seen all kinds of strange things that even the fangs are doing. Uh, five-year grants, you know, because you know you can make it bigger, but it's actually, you know, yeah. I mean, if I if I give you a trillion dollar over the next million years, it doesn't mean anything, right? <laughs> uh, you know, so it, that's one I've seen. But do you I've find
1: seen. that some pl- employees aren't good at that math, or or is it uh, easy to explain that?
0: Yeah, look, I'm getting you know a twenty million dollar package from that company. You know, and then i not get into the yeah. details. The other thing is, you know. Oh, the I see. So packages, They fake you. They don't need yeah. you. Right, right, right. They just
1: give you the partial truth.
0: I just told uh, you I uh, give you a trillion crazy. dollars, Ben, right? Yeah. <laughs> Forget about it. It's about over a million years. Um, yeah. But, you know, and then the other thing I've seen that's kind of funky is, I mean, they do refreshers, right? Like annual mm-hmm. refresh grants. Uh, if you read the employment contracts, there's always a the fine print that says mm-hmm. it's performance based. But they gloss over that and they model that out perfectly. Like they'll say, look, mm-hmm. here's how it works for our company. You get the refreshers and when you add all of that up and you add the annual refreshers and you do all of that. Then you get this much bigger, uh, this big, much bigger amount. So mm-hmm. seeing that happen. Uh, I've also seen vesting schedules that are front loaded. So you vest a good chunk in the first year and the employee says, look, I'm just going to go there and hang out there one year. And I'm going to make so much <laughs> this in that one year. Let's talk in one year um you know and this is not like competing with you know some series a company this is competing with the big guys they actually do this stuff for their upper <laughs> levels um so all kinds of funky stuff is happening in the desperation to go after the best talent in you know in Silicon Valley yeah that's why he- have you seen any of these
1: yeah. Um, yeah, no, like, oh, go ahead, Sanjay.
2: Oh, I was going to say, you know, I, I think the other thing is just people's stock packages have appreciated a ton, right? So oh, the yeah. walkaways are, are just significantly higher. So they've got a generous offer when they joined. And then the market's gone up 2, 3x on some of these stocks. And it's just, it's tough to compete unless you get creative. And so that's the other thing. I think there's almost been this like arms race that's happened because of having to get creative on on how do you pry people out?
0: Yeah. Yeah, and then there's team blind, you know, blind.com where everybody <laughs> changes, exchanges comp yep. information. And then there is, you know, levels.fyi, yep. where we have basically all the top companies uh, compensation. So that's like up there. Um, and, you know, there's this, I've seen erosion happening, you know, um, at the FANGs, like, you know, the, the top ones where, you know, they're starting to sort of erode the levels. So they'll give people L6, which they wouldn't have given a year ago or two years ago, and they started bringing in people at L7. So they're kind of slowly inflating also the levels, which then creates pressure on all the other companies competing and say, well, I have like an L7 offer from Google. Uh, You're not, you mean Databricks is not going to make me, you're just going to make me L6. Um, So yeah, lots of interesting stuff.
1: Interesting. Yeah. You know, I think it just kind of goes to, because Mark and I got this question the other night about like, well, you know, how, like, are there ways that you can change the way you give out equity to get a competitive advantage? And my kind of answer was no. (laughs) Like, (laughs) if you're trying to get advantage that way, like, that's so easy to match um, at the very least. And, you know, especially if you're competing with Facebook and Google and these guys, they can just dump an enormous amount of money on people. So if you're not selling the mission and the culture, then, you know, people care about like what they're doing and what it's like to work there. And you know, if you can't differentiate on that, then you'll never compete with the big guys, at least in my view.
0: Yeah. I have a not so great company, not so great vision, but I'm going to beat Google by just overpaying. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Good luck with that. (laughs) Right. Yeah. The uh, you know, it's it's just, uh, you know, it's just what it's uh, kind of become. It's just this fierce competition over talent. Uh, and uh, I think one thing that's kind of interesting that I don't think anyone looks at is take market cap of companies and divide it by the number of employees. Uh, that kind of tells you how rich you are yeah. in terms of hiring people. Because that tells you how much, no. you know, how much equity could you afford to give to someone.
1: Uh, right, right, right. Yeah, no, that's it. You, you know, that's also a very interesting point on kind of, Uh, why it's a challenge to build um, capital-intensive companies. So let's say you had a company, well, like Tesla, where you just need a lot of people. um, It's very tricky to compete for that because of that equation. Whereas, like, if you're building, you know, Clubhouse, you actually have an easier time with that.
0: 100%, yeah, yeah. And then also the margin structure. Yeah. Very interesting. Cool, it's 5
1: now. Yeah, (laughs) which actually will affect, what kind of companies get built? Good Lord. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's five o'clock. Welcome to Boss Talk. Um, today we have right. a very special guest boss, Sanjit uh, Biswas. And uh, Sanjit is amazing because you know, after completing his PhD, he built a company called Meraki.
2: I feel like I'm gonna to have to start with a bunch of corrections. I didn't finish my PhD. details, yeah. yeah.
0: details, details. Well,
1: details. you were working on a PhD.
2: I was working on a PhD, yeah.
1: And, and, now, and now you're building Samsara, which, and uh, you know, it's great to have you on. And uh, why don't we get into it? Well, so, Uh, how far did you get in your PhD before you left and how big a transition was that uh, from going from your PhD to founding a company?
2: Yeah. So, um, you know, it's funny kind of thinking back, this is, I started my PhD almost two decades ago. So it was a while ago. Um, I actually got probably uh, a year from finishing, roughly speaking. We published a bunch of papers, did a bunch of good work. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we were probably four or five years into the program. Um, And then, uh, Ali, you, you actually did finish and you became a professor. Is that right? Yeah,
0: yeah. So you were basically, I mean, we call what you did ABD, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, what does ABD stand so. for? All but uh, dissertation.
2: Yeah, all but <laughs> dissertation. Yeah, so we, we did all the hard work and then like, didn't didn't actually finish and, and walk. But actually, you know, what was, what was interesting for us was uh, Meraki, which was the first company we started, was really the outgrowth of that research project. We more or less kind of took that, Technology put in a box so other people could build and deploy networks and for us It was actually just the fun of building a big system and, and you know Seeing it be live and seeing it have impact and so in some ways I'm really glad we didn't finish the PhD because that would have been like one network at MIT versus you know What's now like three million networks, so it's it's pretty cool to see what happened with it
0: That's awesome. How big did the company get uh, before the acquisition? Um,
2: Headcount wise we were about um, Probably low 300s. And revenue wise, we were doing about 100, 120 million that year. Um, And then it it continued to grow quite a bit after the acquisition as kind of a little independent uh, unit within Cisco.
1: So, what were some of the things that, oh, go ahead. uh, I was going to say, like, what were some of the things that you did not know how to do when you started that company? Because (laughs) (laughs) getting an ABD um, doesn't
2: quite prepare you for that yeah time. well uh I, i'm I'm laughing because it, it really is like you could probably just make the list of what did we know how to do which is like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> write code <laughs> uh, but yeah like we, we didn't know how to you know sell product like I remember our first customer order um I, I got the order and they said great we'll we'll give you a po I was like that sounds awesome What's a PO? <laughs> so you know <laughs> that, That's that you know we had a lot to figure out. Like we're like, okay, how do you cash this thing, right? Like that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but but then there's a bunch of mechanics there, right? Like how do you form a company? How do you hire people? How do you manage groups of people? Uh, so the thing that we did know how to do was build a product. We we just kind of didn't know any of the other stuff, um, any of the company operation side of things.
1: And and what of that kind of lack of knowledge? Do you feel like screwed up the company where like? Or, or did it not really affect it? So did you, were, were any of those things, things were like, wow, now that I know how to do that, like Samsara is just so much better company because of that? Or did you kind of figure it all out in time to kind of say things?
2: Yeah, you know, I think, um, first of all, Meraki turned out just fine, right? In the long run, we did figure out what a PO was. We figured out to hire people. So, uh, you know, there's a bunch of that kind of uh, what I would kind of term mechanical work that needs to be done for uh, building a company. And that that even goes to like signing leases for office space. It's stuff you have to figure out. So this time around, we were pretty familiar with those. They were kind of cash hits for us. So uh, we we just we, we just kind of moved on to the next thing. So a bunch of those things we were able to do a bit faster. But to answer your question, I don't think there was any kind of long-term repercussions of that. We just had a lot of work to do at the beginning, uh, just kind of figuring out which way was up uh, in terms of getting a company off the ground.
0: And, you know, I have a question, uh, you know, cuz you know we went through the same journey. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, one thing cuz you know, I think what you had and which we had as well is you know how to build product. You knew how to build that really really well, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's basically what we all had as training. Uh, you know, um, as researchers in systems, right? We built systems and we were right. good at that. Uh, but I think one thing we were not prepared for uh, is uh, market strategy, mm-hmm. right? And actually, you were in a competitive, fiercely competitive space, right? I mean, there's like Era Hive and a bunch of these and then Cisco, yeah. you know, and all that. Which parts of that would you have done differently? And how, you know, how did you sort of learn to get into that? Because that's, I, I think it's something that I don't, I feel like, you know, MIT didn't necessarily prepare you for that, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. So, um, you know, quick bit of history on Meraki. So networking company, we started with Wi-Fi access points and made them easy to manage, deploy them uh, easily, manage them from the cloud, that sort of thing. Um, And that was kind of the outgrowth of the research, right? We made it easy to build networks. When we started, we actually had something a little more novel in mind, which was making it easy for communities to deploy free Wi-Fi. So kind of big mesh networks over town squares and cities. And we actually had this like big project in San Francisco and that's actually what we did for the first, uh, I think, almost three years of the company was this kind of organic, disruptive, grassroots uh, networking movement.
1: And, so you were uh, the first internet for everyone kind of company.
2: Yeah, and it was you know peer to peer, peer to peer. It, it was it was really kind of fun because it had this um, it had this novelty about it, right? It felt really disruptive, and and it was gaining traction. Like we got to a couple million dollars in revenue that way. Um, but to, to answer the question around markets and market strategy, we never had thought about it that way. We were thinking about it as technology, right? Just like raw technology, let's like you know bring this to the world. Um, what really changed for us was in two thousand eight. There was a big you know global financial crisis. Funding really dried up, and um, we kind of realized, hey, we have to make this company go on what venture money we've raised so far. And that's when we we basically did sort of a hard pivot towards the more traditional market of enterprise networking, which is you know, companies like Arrowhive Ali that you hmm. mentioned. Um, That's a real pivot. It was a real pivot and it was a pivot for us as founders because we did not know that much about like, how do you do lead gen uh, for uh, you know mid-sized companies that need networks right, for their offices, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So we had to figure out a lot new in year three. Once we made that pivot though, into this mega market, you know the world spends tens of billions of dollars on networking equipment. Uh, for their businesses and schools and and other kinds of environments like that. Once we made that pivot, we actually found a lot of things became easier because rather than convincing people they needed to put Wi-Fi up in their town square, we were instead trying to redirect the flow of people that knew they needed Wi-Fi and were just trying to find the best product. And that's when, you know, our technology really started to shine, which is like, we made it really easy to deploy like a very large Wi-Fi network. So hopefully that made sense. Uh, that pivot to markets. Uh, to a multi-billion dollar market was kind of one of the key things that uh, that happened uh, to Meraki that made it a success.
1: It's fascinating. And did but, you, you know, d- d- what yeah. did you do with your old go-to-market team when you made that pivot? So you kind of had people running around the community trying to get people to use yeah. the thing, and then now you're selling to companies. Those are different people, yeah?
2: Very different people. So... You know, we didn't honestly have a big go-to-market team because we were serving inbound. Like we'd kind of Uh, go by word of mouth and we had a web store and we'd get orders from like, you know, rural fishing towns in Chile and things like that. (laughs) We were like, can UPS ship there? And so like, honestly, if UPS could ship you a box, we'd send it to you kind of thing. Uh, So we didn't have a big go-to-market muscle. And that was something new that we had to build as we started targeting the enterprise.
0: It's kind of fascinating because, you know, I went through the same journey around 2006, Mm -hmm. started the company. Yeah. Uh, You know, actually, we did think about strategy and our business strategy was very, actually, there's a lot of similarities. It was peer-to-peer networking. And the idea was if you want to broadcast a video from a centralized point in an enterprise or anywhere, it's going to be very costly because you need a lot of bandwidth right there. Mm -hmm. But if you leverage this kind of similar ideas, you know, peer-to-peer distributed uh, sharing of bandwidth then you can cut that cost. And we thought that's, then that they'll that, save a lot of money for people. Uh, but the market force that we didn't take into account is that uh, very soon bandwidth would be over-provisioned by all the ISPs and everybody, mm-hmm. and it would become almost a free commodity. So great, you saved costs there, but you know it's not worth anything anymore. So the market changed because the cost of internet basically exponentially decreased. Yeah. Uh, and the bandwidth just like inc- exponentially increased over the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's sort of a hard lesson in, you know, pay attention to market trends and secular trends that are going on. Yeah. Uh, so it's like, interesting. It's similar.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I think uh, these market forces are so powerful. they They eclipse the power of any one company or one even determined team, right? Like if you can align with the market force, it just becomes so much easier than trying to like, you know, shove a product uphill.
1: Yeah. 100%. yeah. 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 No, <laughs> like, yeah, saving sa- saving bandwidth uh, turned out to be definitely a very bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So, but you, you hit. You ran into a market for us yourself at uh, Meraki, which was Cisco, right? I mean, like, yeah. they, they were such a dominant player that they themselves kind of took a lot of the oxygen out. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah. So. Um... Yeah, kind of going back to the history, I think we made that pivot in the enterprise in 09. And I feel like I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think revenue is roughly 10 to 20 million. We doubled it to like 30 to 40, and then doubled it again. And at that point, we started actually feeling this kind of glass ceiling effect, uh, which is exactly hmm. what you're referring to at Cisco, they had massive market share, I can't remember the Wi Fi numbers, I remember, in we had products in routing and switching as well. In routing, they had something like 86% market share. Which just—if you think about that—it's like you know, it's like a planet the size of Jupiter, right? Uh, in in yeah. your uh, in your vision, and like it was very hard to get customers who were super faithful, by the way, to Cisco as a brand and a, a community because yeah. they have gotten certifications and all that kind of stuff to get to, to certifications,
1: coffee cups. Got to yeah. play at Tiger Woods, the whole
2: thing. <laughs> and and that was actually something Cisco had built up as an asset, um, was that that channel, right? They had like 30,000 channel partners. So we were actually not just competing with Cisco. We were competing with this extended sales force that had, I want to say, like 500,000 sales reps in it, right? Like the entire Cisco yeah. ecosystem that was selling those products. And we were still winning, we were growing, but it it kind of became clear to us that um, it was going to become a bigger and bigger headwind, especially as we kept moving up into the enterprise and, and working with larger customers.
1: Yeah, yeah you know, it was, was funny. Here. Well, we did a we did a deal with Cisco, you know, where they were a reseller. Mm-hmm. And I remember the sales guy going, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll go in there and the, the Cisco guy will help us. I'm like, oh, great. And we go and the Cisco guy, like, had a badge <laughs> for the company, like, that uh-huh. we were selling to, you know, like, I was like, "How'd you get a badge?" She's like, "Oh, I have a cube." Yeah, <laughs> like he actually lived in the company. He only had one account. He lived yeah. there, and you know, it's like, well, that's like a big advantage.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, we do that today actually at Terabox. I don't know if you yeah. do that, Sanjit. We have always we have multiple badge people in some of the companies, you know, who walk the corridors yeah. all day and they have access to like mm-hmm. the you know internet at the enterprise. I mean, one question I have actually is: Is there anything you could have done strategy wise now looking back? Yeah, where you could have kind of continued gr- growing it and kind of circumventing, you know, Cisco's mass price reach and market reach. Uh,
2: you, you mean if Meraki had remained independent or? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a kind of tough thought experiment to run. Uh, certainly, I think the, the market for Wi-Fi continued to grow more than we expected. And then we actually were selling a multi-product portfolio. And so I think we kind of, Underestimated the value of that kind of platform or multi-product sale. Customers really wanted to see um, all all of their clients, whether they're on Wi-Fi or on Ethernet, in one place, and and all their sites also. Um, and that's something that we actually had that, that Cisco at the time didn't really have a good product for. So it's very possible we could have grown, um, you know, maybe to five hundred or or a billion dollars in revenue. I think after that, it still would have been challenging kind of for the ecosystem reason I mentioned before. If I think about the stuff that really worked post acquisition, we ended up getting these like big service providers to start selling our products like British Telecom and and, and others. Um, and that's, it was basically that channel would have just been really hard to establish or would have probably taken us five years. So I think, yeah, Meraki probably could have grown on its own for quite some time. and But I kind of doubt that it would have gotten to the same revenue scale as that now.
1: Yeah. So. Ted, tell us about kind of that decision, because you have a company. Yep. You built it from nothing. You know, people like working there. Uh, You know, the business is going fine. How do you kind of make that decision to actually sell the company to Cisco and, you know, and not continue? And then were the employees disappointed? You know, they were kind of the enemy. And then like, were you disappointed? Like, how did you feel like two days after you sold it? Did you want to throw up on your shoes or like, how'd that go? Uh,
2: well, I, I, I distinctly remember uh, wanting to sleep because it was so exhausting getting the merger agreement done. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually, uh, they, there was like an analyst call that Cisco had set up you know, with the, the uh, equities analysts. And I, I was so tired. I just like slept through the whole thing. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> that, that's kind of where I was um going back to that that kind of moment in time the the real thing that was driving us first of all the company was set up to go become a public company we were uh, getting ready we just hired a, a cfo who had um, been a public company cfo we were starting to draft the s1 so process wise uh, we were down, going down that path but we also were doing a bunch of the math on you know how would the growth of the company slow over time and mm-hmm. um, you know the the kind of second place company in networking, at least back then, was Juniper. And so we looked at Juniper's yeah. market cap, and uh, they were like a ten billion dollar market cap company. And they're a good company, yeah. by the way. They have like you know yeah. billions of dollars in product sales, like well known. And that's actually what what kind of concerned us a little bit was that the the kind of second place slot. Is never as as exciting as the first place, right? When it comes to a multiples perspective or market dominance. And yep. we we felt like, okay, we actually are kind of we were born 25 years too late. We were just late to the networking party, right? When it when it came to networking. And so that's that was part of the calculus. And I think that's what the employees were motivated by. It was a good financial outcome for them, but seeing people use the product, like there's still something that I noticed like if I walk into like a Starbucks or a retail location and I see a Meraki access point on the ceiling, it's just kind of a cool feeling to see people using your product. And that's actually something that the employees were really excited about too. And the vast majority of them stayed post-acquisition and many of them are still there. So I think the uh, seeing it through and seeing the impact was actually even more motivating than the money. But yeah, it was a tough decision. And, and now it's like multiples are much, much higher uh, $1.2 billion doesn't sound like a lot of money uh, for, for a successful uh, you know, big company to get acquired by, uh, but at the time it was a big win. And so actually people were overall pretty
0: happy, I think. Yeah, things have gone crazy, right, in recent years, like valuations are just well, back then. But
2: I, I would also argue markets, at least in software, have just gotten a lot bigger. So there's more revenue to be made. There's more you yeah. know, profit ultimately down the road. Um, but yeah, like back then numbers were very different. I I kind of feel like a old person talking about the price of a can of Coke or something. Right. And like, I was a nickel, uh, but it, it it is different how it's, it's amazing how quickly it's changed.
0: So I have a question. Um, you know, Ben, we have a common friend, you know, uh, sold the company and I'm not going to say who it is. And, you know, he pings me like, you know, he's like, this is soul crushing, crushing to watch. You know, they're destroying my company. You know, oh, it's uh I, I can't watch this. You know, it's the worst thing I've done in my whole life. Um, you know, what, what was the, you know, so you talked about the good, which is like the impact. Yeah. That you guys, I mean, you got to have a huge impact with Meraki inside yeah. Cisco, like growing it, enterprises, the, you know, getting all the service providers, selling mm-hmm. it. But what about other, I mean, you you went in there and, you know, a year later you were a Cisco exec knowing exactly all the po- political tricks and <laughs> how to play the corporate ladder and you know, no, no or no, no. how was it? yeah,
2: yeah, no. it was it was eye-opening um, just because, like we were talking about at the beginning, we started out in academia, right? So we'd done like internships at at, at companies, but had never like really worked there, and certainly not as exact. So yeah, that yeah. was a totally new world for us. Um, we were fortunate in that when we put the deal together, uh, Meraki is based in San Francisco. Cisco's headquartered in San Jose. They agreed to uh, let Meraki kind of stay up in the city and stay independent, mm. like run out of its own building. And we basically um, ran out of our own bank account, right? Like, so it was, it was a bit of a separate entity kind of thing, which was different, by the way, for Cisco back then. They had done, yeah. um, I think, 160 acquisitions before us. And so they yeah. really had, they like literally had a playbook. And <laughs> the integration team, uh, I remember at some point, they called us like 161. I was like, what? And I felt like, you know, it was like the Borg or something from Star Trek, like, <laughs> like your CC is 161. And, and actually what ended up happening is uh, we had buy-in at a pretty senior level that because there was so much product overlap, they wanted to be careful that there, there wasn't this kind of like bear hug from the parent company that crushed this important and expensive asset they just bought. So that was the setup that helped us out. Um, a few of us, myself and, and my co-founders, we were sort of on that interface. And so we were kind of straddling both sides, talking to San Jose and also working with our employees. But the employee experience for the first year was actually, I would say, pretty good because we we kind of got the, the tailwind of the Cisco brand and the channel. But we got mm-hmm. to keep this sort of way of working that we had at Meraki. And I think that first year is really what kept people excited. And then revenue more than doubled and it it really started to grow fast. And that's when I think everyone got bought in that, hey, this thing is actually pretty good.
1: Hmm. And but how about your life, you know, going to quarterly business reviews and wrangling the system? Like, what was that like? And did did you feel like was it foreign and like, oh, I want to learn this? Or was it like, okay, I got to I'll go to these meetings. But, you know, there's definitely a time limit on my life here.
2: Yeah no I I kind of felt a sense of duty and responsibility like I was the one who who made the deal happen right like put it together and I wanted to prove to everyone that it was a it was a good deal for both sides and so there was a sense of mission there of like we are going to make mm-hmm. this work and uh it's it's funny we we sort of um we kind of ended up calling it like sort of radiation exposure right because it's a big company right and so we were like what what's all this politics stuff about. And like, you know, we were trying to figure out like it was very much kind of games of Thronesy right? Like it, it Game of Thronesy where um, I think at that time, John Chambers had announced he was going to step down, but they hadn't announced the new CEO, Chuck Robbins. And so there was like a lot of speculation of like, like, who's going to get the, the job and things like that. And we we're like, why are not we focus on building networking products? <laughs> so there was a bunch of that, just like figuring out how big companies work. Uh, but but for us, at least for me as a founder, it was really about, like, I wanted to make the integration uh, work. And then, um, yeah, by by year two, at that point, it was pretty clear it was going to work. But I just didn't see a long-term home for myself, and, and neither did, did John, for example, as our CTO, um, because we loved building from scratch. And, you know, I, I I remember there were these episodes where someone would tell me to, like, use a different PowerPoint template, which it just never happened, right? As a founder, CEO, you kind of choose however you want the slides to look. And so there were a bunch of those kinds of details where it's just hard, I think, for um, a company founder and CEO to integrate well. Um, and and we just we were super transparent with the Cisco folks. So we wanted to make Meraki a success. But at some point, uh, we were going to go do something else. And, and that's when we kind of started our evaporation process.
0: And, you know, I, I got to ask because, you know, I have a little bit of inside scoop. There were yeah. people at Cisco who didn't want you to stay independent, right? they wanted it, they wanted to merge it in. And yeah. how did you pull that off? I mean, like that's a really rare thing for like that machinery to not swallow you whole and you know, you know, fire the HR people, the finance team, and then put the centralized systems in place and roll you in under the existing teams.
2: Yeah, you know. Um... I think it it did come down to a couple of the senior folks uh, were true sponsors, like not just like signing their name up next to the acquisition, but they would take meetings with us. They would like brainstorm with us. Um, one of our sponsors is now the CEO. Uh, Chuck Chuck Robbins was like kind of our sales sponsor, and uh, he actually you know really respected the terms of that original agreement. Um, and and I think you know the benefit was Cisco did ultimately end up with the software as a service. Uh, kind of license-based networking platform and so that was like the upside for them so they were pretty clear thinking yeah if you go down a couple of layers there was certainly immune system reaction but now i think that's turned around but in that first year there was a a lot of different feelings of like do people like this or or hate this
0: yeah so what happened so how did you you said you knew you're not gonna this is not for you like long term So how did that happen? How did you? How did the exit? How did you plan the exit, and how did you make it happen? And how how do you do that without upsetting everybody? And you know, uh, yeah, what's the trick? Um,
2: well, we did a couple of things. The first thing was just to make sure that the company was going to like beat its financial plan, and and for acquisitions, that's not a given, right? Like a lot of acquisitions kind of fail in your your you know two or something like that because of these integration kind of issues. So. That was kind of the first thing is we want to make sure there's enough enough momentum in the business. Um, Then we kind of communicated to the sponsors like, hey, here's kind of how we're feeling. And they were asking, they were basically asking us like, so, you know, you've kind of done the trial. Uh, Do you want to stick around? And we kind of just gave them the honest answer and, and they were okay with it. And that's kind of when we switched to like, okay, what's the succession plan? Like who's going to take over and let's start training them up. So the guy that took over for me. Uh, Todd Nightingale took over as uh, the GM. He's now uh, SVP or EVP. I don't, I don't even know what. He's continued mm-hmm. to grow at Cisco. We started basically going to meetings together, and I, I basically just kind of like started doing uh, a, a brain dump of everything that I knew about the business. And so it was like a six-month transition. And by the end of it, I think my guess is most employees didn't feel the leadership change. They like, of course, noticed the founders. We're leaving, but um, there wasn't like a hiccup in the business. And I think that was really important because it kept people focused in the right direction.
1: And, and when you left, did you know what you wanted to do? Were you already like, okay, we're <laughs> going to build a different company? Or did you, you know, were you like, oh, I've got all this money, maybe I should... Um... You know, no, and, or...
2: and I would say even more than money, it was, uh, I've got all this time. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Because honestly, like we hadn't really taken uh, real vacations. Like it's when, yeah. when you're like a founder, you're just like so plugged in and you feel responsible for everything. Like it was just, it was, that was like, even the acquisition, it's not like the weight was lifted off our shoulders. Then we felt that responsibility of integration. Um, so my plan was actually to, to do nothing. And I was even considering going back and finishing that PhD we were talking about. <laughs>
1: Uh, <laughs> I don't
2: even in Yeah. Well, and, and technically like MIT told us we were on leave. They gave us like 25 years. So I was like, okay, I used like six of those years, but I can I can still go back, right? Um so we actually wrote a paper and got it published in an academic conference. Uh, Ali, we got a we got a Sigcom paper published. <laughs> oh, nice. That's data? the
0: top that's the top networking conference.
2: Yeah, so we're like, okay, cool, we can still publish papers, but um, what was kind of eye-opening for us is it took I, said, come, I don't know, like four months, I, I don't remember what the review period was, but it was like four months or six months to get back to us to find out if the paper was accepted. And that's mm-hmm. that was like really eye-opening. We're like, whoa, we've just gotten used to like really fast feedback loops, right? You <laughs> <laughs> can like talk to a customer yeah. or build a product or whatever. And um, at that point, I was like, okay, yeah, maybe academia is not is not the right place for me. Um, But we didn't know that we wanted to do another company, mainly because we knew it was a ton of work.
1: So that's uh, actually an interesting – let me just go back to that
2: because that's kind of like a
1: thing that I think a lot of us go through is um, at that point, you were a boss. And like bosses don't wait for the powers that be to tell them what to do. Yeah. And like at this point, did you have that – did you know then that you couldn't be managed anymore? Like you could never (laughs) work for anybody? Like was that the point where you realized it?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I I don't think I'd ever really thought about going and getting a job somewhere in that traditional yeah. sense. Um, so, yeah, but I kind of viewed academia not so much as a job, but an area where you can work with some really bright grad students and build some cool things and, and you know, push the state of the art. So that's what mm-hmm. attracted me to that idea. Uh, but it wasn't the idea that, you know, I'd report to some head of the department or whatever. because that Or you'd uh, have to
1: submit a paper and, and, and wait for them to tell you whether they liked it.
2: You know. yeah, exactly. and And now, like you know, there's a lot of uh, there's, of course, academic politics. And even within these communities, there's different themes that they kind of take hold. and And Ali probably remembers all of that from you know fifteen years ago. but um, yeah. th- that's the that's the part that actually didn't feel so good. And so yeah, eventually, uh, after taking that break and and uh, my wife and I we just had our first kids, so figuring out how <laughs> how that whole thing works. Um, we, we've just found ourselves tinkering again. And that's actually what kind of got us back into doing a startup is it's it, it is it's a lot of work, but it is a lot of fun and it's really fulfilling and, you know, <sighs> something we wanted to do again.
1: All right. And so then, um, so you start tinkering and then what kind of were the things that were like, okay, we did it this way at Meraki and we're going to keep that. And then we did it this way at Meraki and we're not going to keep it from like a strategy and culture standpoint. Like what were the big um, things yeah. to repeat and not repeat?
2: Well, um, the, the biggest kind of fork or decision that we made was not to go back into the world of IT. Um, and, and that was actually a kind of calculated decision because we felt like at Meraki, it wasn't just that we built Wi-Fi or even routers and switches. We started building like systems. Uh, systems management software for like device management. We were working on some other products um, like uh, phones, cameras, all kinds of stuff. And so we actually felt like we'd had a chance to scratch the IT itch and explore a bunch of those ideas. So we almost said, look, it it would almost, it it just wouldn't be a good idea to go right back into the world of IT because there would be too much natural overlap with what we were doing at Moroccan. We just didn't want to (laughs) like kind of ruffle feathers and and cause problems. And maybe that's, I don't remember the exact logic at that point, but it just didn't feel as exciting. Um, so we were... But also, IT, IT
1: and networking means you're competing with Cisco because they've got like right. 70% share. We just go right back it. into
2: it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. So it, it just intuitively, that didn't feel like the right answer. So we just didn't explore it a ton. Um, mm-hmm. We got really interested in this kind of world of infrastructure, which is this world behind the curtain. I think John and I were, I don't know, reading a lot of books and blogs. We were reading about energy and, you know, at, at that time, uh, understanding sustainability and climate change and kind of like these big macroeconomic things. And I think being infrastructure nerds, we were like, whoa, the, the plumbing of the world, the actual plumbing is very interesting. Uh, like, where does the world get its energy? Like, how does how do products move around? That sort of thing. And that's when we realized, like, infrastructure uh, and operations is like a third or maybe even 40 percent of the GDP in the world. And that got mm-hmm. that like really just kind of captured our attention. Jesse, and, so actually-
1: and you mean like when you say infrastructure and operations, do you mean like just like shipping stuff and that kind of thing, or like what do you mean?
2: Yeah, no, like, uh, you know, supply chains are a big part of it. Um, and mm-hmm. and that's like shipping, but also trucking, for example. Uh, but we were thinking about uh, manufacturing and warehousing, and then, you know, energy production and distribution, um, just all of, like food and beverage. Just There's a lot that, that kind of goes on in terms of keeping 7 billion people, uh, you know, running.
1: And that's
2: yeah. right. <laughs> uh, so that was just really interesting to us. And so this time we actually started more market first. We said, hey, that's the market mm-hmm. we want to serve. And when we looked around, we were like, okay, well, cool. Let's talk to some, you know, some of our friends who are like working on those problems. We looked around and we found a bunch of people building consumer companies, a bunch of people building enterprise companies, but no one <laughs> building companies to serve this market, this world of infrastructure. And so uh, that's kind of what we decided to go, you know, devote some time to.
1: Huh. And what did you, when you went into it, uh, what did they have technologically? Were they um, well-equipped or, you know, was it, you know, or was yeah. there an obvious hole or, you know, what did you find?
2: Yeah, you know, um, they, they weren't, you know, customers, nobody living in a cave, right? So folks had technology, but it tended to be less technology enabled than you might imagine. So, you know, typical businesses, like if you look super macroscopically, uh, companies spend like, you know, about 3% of their revenue on IT. And, and Ali, I, I don't know what if Databricks, you guys have studied this, but like it, there's just a lot of IT spend, right, for most modern enterprises because data is super valuable. People get it. Um, in operations, these are lower-margin businesses, so they just have less money to go and invest in these technologies. So it was a bit of a laggard industry. So you'd see computers, but they were like running like, uh, you know, Windows NT, if you remember NT, right? <laughs> uh, okay. and, and you're like, wow, this is fascinating. And like, there would be like, you know, CRT monitors. You're like, oh, it's interesting. It's kind of like just stuck in time a little bit. So they had tech, but it was older tech, and none of
1: it was <laughs> wait, wait, didn't NT stand for new technology. <laughs>
2: <laughs> We'd have to ask uh, Steve what what the original acronym was. But um, what we found is we saw a bunch of systems. They were siloed systems. Like they were definitely not on online. Like you couldn't, you know, move data into the cloud. Um, so that was interesting. And then we actually saw a lot of pen and paper still being used. So that was the other like tell that there was, it was kind of ripe for disruption was, you know, it's, it's not like, you know, this is 2015. So um, the world had smartphones at that point and people had them, you know, for entertainment and, and you know, personal stuff, but all their apps were running on green screen computers or off pen and paper. And to us, that felt like really strange. And we, we were like, okay, there's definitely something here. Uh, where we can have some impact. Wow. Wow. So, and why I, did
0: you uh, oh, go ahead? Yeah. Ali. I'm curious how because you, you know, when you bootstrap, it was the same Iraqi team pretty much, right?
2: Yeah. 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 A bunch of us from Iraqi. Uh, and that's actually the name Samsara, is this kind of cycle of reincarnation, rebirth. So, there are a bunch <laughs> of us from Iraqi and actually a few of us that know, knew each other from MIT. So, definitely uh, a familiar crew.
0: So, um, you got the cabal together.
2: Yeah, yeah. And that that was actually great because it means that we didn't have to go spend a lot of time recruiting. We could actually spend time exploring. Um, but it was interesting, I think, thinking back to that first year, you would think because we'd built a company before, you could just dive right in and like hit the ground running and like go find your way to revenue really quickly. The first couple of product ideas we had um, just like didn't res- resonate with the market. So we kind of were spending time with these customers. Um, we thought, hey, this world of sensors, uh, kind of wireless sensors would be really interesting, connecting them to the cloud, uh, that sort of thing. So the first sensor we made was a temperature sensor. And we were really excited because we we're like, oh, finally, like all these people with big refrigerators, we'll be able to catch those failures and prevent product loss. Um, we built the sensor. We built the whole system, stood it up in the first couple of months, brought it to customers. And they were just like, OK, this is cool. Um, <laughs> not sure we need it. But yeah, well, plug, you guys seem like nice guys. So they, they plugged it in. <laughs> nothing happened. Like it was like kind of crickets. And that's when we're yeah. like, oh, maybe this is harder than we remember.
1: <laughs> we just build
2: a product and, and get the company off the ground. But we were really fortunate. Those customers ended up leading us to the application that helped the company take off, which was uh, GPS and fleet tracking. So they wanted sensors, but they wanted them on their trucks, not in their warehouses. And that just <laughs> happened to be a big gap in 2015 that we couldn't see from the outside. But once it got close, it became really obvious that like, how could you not know where your your truck is in, in real time, when you could actually see your Uber or your Lyft um, in real time, and so filling that gap ended up being how we got our start.
1: Interesting. And um, so, you know, tell us a little bit about the kind of cultural side. Um, you know, were there things that you did at Meraki that um, you felt like, nah, culturally will be different? Did you still hire PhDs like that kind of thing? Like, how do you think about that?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, overall, I, I was really proud of the culture we built at Meraki, and it was actually something mm-hmm. that a lot of people remarked on. Like that was one of the reasons they liked working at the company, that the products and customers were cool, but they really liked working with each other. Um, so we did want to make sure we, we had some of those kind of tenants of that culture.
0: Um, so the, What the, were those, by the way? What were those? I mean, how did you, how yeah. did you create a company where the culture was so awesome?
2: Um, well, I, I think at Meraki, we kind of lucked into it because we had a great group of people we started with, like a bunch of those grad students from MIT that, that helped us get off the ground. Like they were the initial engineers and um, they, they were the ones who were curious and asking a lot of questions. So this, this idea, like one of our cultural um, principles in both companies had been around customer feedback and running a feedback loop. That was something that we all figured out as engineers working together. Um, when we were building those first products. like In the Meraki dashboard, there's actually a little box, and I think it's still there, that says, I wish this page would. And it's like a little one-line feedback form where you can basically transmit feedback all the way back to the developers uh, of that feature. Um, so things like that made us really customer-centric. Um, and that was refreshing because there was no such mechanism for a Cisco router at the time, right? If you can like, type into the iOS command prompt, like, I wish this router would. and um, it, it made it easy to go figure out what features would be really relevant to customers and, and really get them excited. So that was like one big thing that we figured out at Meraki almost by accident, because we just didn't know what the product needed to do. So we put it in there <laughs> at the beginning um, that we we brought with us uh, to Samsara, this idea of being customer feedback driven. Um, you know, there are a bunch of other kind of uh, principles and tenets around just making sure. And, and again, this sort of emerged at Meraki, but uh, we were very naturally long-term oriented because we had a lot of products we wanted to build. Like wi- Wi-Fi access points were the first one, but we we had a lot of ideas. And so um, we tried to just make sure that everyone was was on board with like, hey, we're not just going to build one thing. We're going to build a bunch of things and and kind of roll it out over time. So that was another thing that uh, kind of came with us. And then the last piece was just around um, how how we communicate and how we're transparent. We try to be as authentic as we can be um, and I think that that engenders a lot of trust in the organization, and you need that if you're going to scale, uh, because at some point you become a distributed system, and so it, it's actually helpful if if folks are on the same page. And anyway, so those are kind of some of the cultural principles that we had that uh, we did bring with us, and I, I think have served us well at SamSara.
0: I actually think uh, one of the things you mentioned, uh, I mentioned to people when they start companies, they're like, oh, you know, culture. How should I think about the culture? I want my yeah. culture to be this. But I think the most important thing you said which I think is also true about Databricks and other great cultures and companies, is the first 10 people you hired, the first 20 yeah. people you hired, that is the culture of that company. Yeah. And it permeates. So those 10, 20 first hires end up actually defining your culture quite a bit. I mean, it's very similar to what Ben says in his book, right? Mm-hmm. Is You know, what you do uh, is who you are. Well, exactly. what those twenty first people do is who the company <laughs> Gets is. Gets imitated, yeah,
2: absolutely. Yeah. And, and, the you know... In starting Samsara, because we had so many folks we'd worked with at Meraki, I think a bunch of the culture transported over very naturally because those first 10 people had worked in that other culture. And so like it was, it was sort of like you know breaking off a branch of a tree and planting it kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it would have been very hard to change should we have wanted to do something different um, at, at, after after some point.
0: Did you institutionalize this at Samsara now? Because first time, as I said, you get your first 20 people and you kind of like, Mind meld, and you, you know, you guys only got to 300 employees then, yeah. right? So I'm sorry, it's way bigger now. Like, yes. you know, I don't know how many guys you, how many employees you have.
2: Yeah, we're like 1,400, know. and in in a little bit less time. So you're right. Um, we we did kind of, um, I, I don't want to say institutionalize it, but we we created onboarding. Right? It it took us a while to figure out the importance of onboarding and this kind of that initial new employee experience at Meraki, uh, at Samsara, we were like, hey, we got to have this. And I remember meeting with Ben, and I think Ben, you even shared some of your onboarding slides from when you were CEO. Um, and so it's just something that I think companies figure out. You have to transmit the culture very explicitly. And uh, that's that's like one of the keys to scaling, especially as you start uh, ending up in you know multiple offices around the world and people who've never really had chance to spend time with the founders or headquarters, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that's the um, probably the hardest thing to, you know, because as you grow, it's true that your first kind of people set the culture. But if you grow fast, you hire a lot of people from different cultures, mm-hmm. um, like the Google culture, <laughs> uh, yeah. which is very unique um, and pronounced, and other things, and they're coming in with those cultural assumptions. So if you don't reset them, um, you know, many times, you know, your culture is going to start to drift that direction.
2: Right. Yeah.
1: So and how do you
0: deal with that? Did you, did you have to yeah. do anything around that? I'm curious, because, you know, we certainly saw that at Arabics too, right? It's, you know, uh, you hire a leader, they hire their people, and then they hire more people underneath them. So you have like multiple levels of people mm-hmm. now, where, you know, you get this little bubble, uh, and they might not even know, they're just, they're just behaving how they think is the right way to behave. But actually, they're following cultural norms of. Some big institution that's really good at institutionalize their culture,
2: yeah. i'm I'm trying to think, uh, so you know uh, we didn't end up with these um, pockets the the way you're describing, which I think happens when some senior leaders come in because uh, uh, we, yeah. we were kind of fortunate. A bunch of our senior leaders came from Iraqi. So if anything, that was like the like dominant strain of culture that came in. Um, and then we got to some pretty significant scale before people started really coming from other companies. And at that point, it was it was harder to sway the culture of the company. So that that was kind of an interesting sort of side effect of just how we happened to get started. Um, but, you know, I totally understand what you're saying. And and now we have people that come in from Amazon or ServiceNow, and, like, these are great companies, but you have to figure out what are you going to, like, actually, you know, borrow from those cultures and, and what are you going to keep of your own? Um, so... Understand the problem. It just didn't occur to us, or it didn't occur in our company, in the same way.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm curious, you know. So COVID happened last year, yeah, and we all went through a crazy journey. I'm, I'm curious how that was for you guys. Uh, I'm, you know, I'll share also what Databricks saw, but uh, yeah. it's sort of every company has had sort of a crazy experience during this. Yeah, year. yeah.
1: What, yeah. What, what happened, and what you learn, and what's your conclusion going forward?
2: Yeah. So. Um, you know, I'll share with you kind of how it felt, right? So being being a CEO kind of leading into COVID, first of all, none of us <laughs> managed through a global pandemic. So that's like a new thing. doesn't matter if you've done a startup before, <laughs> like you haven't seen a pandemic. Um, you know, for us, there was the like, okay, let's all figure out how to go work remote. We had a very strong in-office culture um, and we didn't have a bunch of remote teams. So just figuring out how to like you know, do virtual stand-ups and all that stuff was new for us. So there was a bunch of, like, kind of mechanics. Um, that was the first, like, two weeks or so. The the more, you know, uh, difficult thing for us was actually that our customers, because they're not super high margin, everyone started to really freeze up um, with their purchases. And we've been in this, like, super high growth mode where revenue is growing really fast. Our expenses have been growing quickly because we were trying to forward invest and make sure we were building the bridge as as, as we were going. Um, and so we found ourselves kind of caught off guard. We were like, okay, this was our expansion year. We were going to like double headcount and uh, keep growing really fast, open a bunch of offices, et cetera. And we were like just caught overextended. And so that was yep, really uh, I
1: know that feeling.
2: <laughs> That's the, the kind of wily e. Coyote, like ran yep. off a cliff <laughs> sort of feeling. Um, so we, we had a, a really tough experience where... Also, um, because our customers are lower margin and they didn't know if we were going to be heading into like the Great Depression, everyone just kind of froze. And that was like really terrifying as CEO, because you're not only trying to lead your team of people into working remote and make sure everyone's safe. And, you know, we're all trying to figure out what this virus was and all that stuff. You're also trying to make sure that there's enough revenue coming in. Um, we ended up being really fortunate. Our customer base, uh, now that you think about it, it's kind of obvious, but... are are, you know, supply chain companies and infrastructure providers. So they were the folks continuing to operate through the pandemic. Um, That became apparent a quarter later, right? Because then they started, you know, driving just as many miles as they did before. They were actually, you know, moving all that toilet paper that people were talking about (laughs) from distribution centers to retail locations. So we ended up bouncing back, uh, I think, faster than we expected. But that first month, that was really terrifying for us.
0: And you did the fundraise during that period, right? That like the the toughest period possible for all of us, but probably even tougher for you since you were selling to these low margin businesses.
2: Yeah, yeah. So we were um we had actually started that process uh, just before, I think it was like late February or something. Um and I think Ali, you and I bumped into each other at, at one of these investor conferences, right? Like yeah. at that time it wasn't it wasn't clear this was gonna be such a such a big thing. Um, and so, well, Mark we, uh, knew,
0: but the rest yeah, did
2: Well, Mark knows everything. So, <laughs> and, and I, I did tell Mark at our first board meeting after that that he was right. So uh, he, he he got a, a star from us for that. <laughs> um, but but yeah, we were in the middle of this fundraise, and again, we just didn't know which way things were going to go. And it, it actually all the sort of signs pointed to like it was going to be like 2008. And if anything, um, the thing that we learned from 2008 was. It takes a while for the world to recover from a recession. Now, there wasn't as much like fiscal stimulus and and all this kind of other stuff that's happened as recently. Um, But we were preparing for the worst. And we said, "It's, it's important just for us to really shore up the balance sheets. And the most important thing was for the company to be secure and for us to keep serving customers. So we said, let's just do it and put the money on our balance sheet. And I'm still glad we did it. It was painful, but it was like the right thing to
0: do. Any advice uh, raising during those kind of times, you know, when you're kind of on your back foot and, you know, the investors have all the leverage in the world. At least I felt that was the case, you know, around that time.
2: How to raise money in a pandemic. It's like, I don't think people (laughs) read that blog post that much. It was mainly a question of multiples and valuation. So it was a bit of like, make sure that you've got a real good business because then you've got the sort of intrinsic demand. Then the question is like, what's the market clearing price for the round? And does that make sense? Um, And I think I'm guessing Databricks is in the same camp like you guys yeah. have a really awesome business and yeah maybe spending slows down for a while and you have to like modulate the company but fundamentally what you're doing is still very interesting and i think yeah. investors were were thinking that way but it, it didn't feel that way as, as you know as, <clears> as i just mentioned it but i think ultimately folks were willing to write term sheets even in that first month of the pandemic
0: yeah yeah it makes sense i felt like it changed the sentiments changed mm-hmm. from week to week depending on the stock market we're doing uh investors had sort of different, you know, appetite for investing is like, you know, really changing, like pivoting quickly. Um, So I'm curious. So what what are you going to do, actually? What's Amsara doing? So you're like in office culture, um, everybody's sort of not so much distributed, remote. Um, What are you going to do going forward? What's the long term plan around that?
2: Yeah, it's something I think every company has been giving a lot of thought to. So we ran, you know, the surveys inside the company, too. And really, it's about, Kind of engaging with the employee base, like working in a way that's compatible with how the company wants to work. What we found was um, I, I can't remember the exact number, sixty something percent of folks wanted some kind of in-office experience. Um, and they weren't thinking five days a week in the office. I think everyone's having a hard time imagining that, but they were thinking like maybe two or three. And so that's kind of the de facto standard is is the hybrid. Um, but you know there were, were a bunch of people who said, you know we like working remote. And then we we did a bunch of hiring in the pandemic and found some really great people who just happened to be based outside of our, our main hubs. And so we said, you know, it's actually important for us to embrace that. And so we've been trying to figure out how do we refactor and align teams to make that work really well. So it's a good experience. If you are remote that we've kind of aligned, you know, even based on time zones, your manager is also remote, that kind of thing. So it's a mix, I'd say two thirds hybrid and a third full remote.
0: And can, hmm. can the teams hire wherever they want? Like, you know, if I'm a manager, can I go if I found some really great candidates in you know pretty random places without yeah. where you don't have a office. Mobile, Alabama? <laughs> yeah. Can I can I hire that person?
2: Yeah. So it depends on the role, but we post a bunch of roles as U.S.-remote. Like, so we don't have global remote, uh, at least not yet, because there's a bunch of additional kind of complexity to that. But in the U.S., uh, a bunch of our roles, at least you know, in teams like engineering and sales, um, have a, a remote offering. So um, the short answer is yes, but it, it kind of depends once you start getting the details.
1: And do you require that all meetings be uh, on video, or do you let meetings happen in person and on video, or how do you think about that? Yeah, and how do you keep people from being second class citizens? If yeah, exactly.
2: How do you make sure it's inclusive, right? That's that. That I think is something we're all f- trying to figure out. I think there's going to be. We were already kind of there, by the way, pre-pandemic, because we were uh, we were over a thousand employees spread across multiple buildings, even in San Francisco. So it was really interesting. We had Zoom in every conference room, right? Um, yeah. So, yeah. Right. Well,
1: you guys are our networking,
2: guys. <laughs> after all. <yeah. laughs> So, so I, I think, you know, we were already doing most of the meetings with video and uh, sometimes it's just like a practical optimization. Um, so, and every meeting we ran, even pre-pandemic had good AV for that reason, uh, because you may not be in the same building uh, or in the same, same state. So I think we will go back to that and we'll, we're just going to have to be really conscious about making sure people are included. And we're going to run the same way we do like, you know, uh, pay equity, uh, pay equality surveys. We're going to have to do similar kinds of uh, analyses to make sure that people are you know still getting promoted at the same rate um, and still engaged at the same rate if they're in these remote offices and debug as we go. So I don't have a clean answer for you. I'm like, this is what we're gonna do, other than we're gonna measure it and make sure these people are included uh, at all times.
1: So both of you guys are uh, based have companies based in San Francisco. And you know San Francisco has gone from you know one of the great cities in the world. Everybody wants to live there. Um, to uh, something less than that during COVID as they've kind of shuttered, you know, so many restaurants have gone out of business and then the uh, homeless problem has been exacerbated. And then the kind of both the city and the state have sent a fairly clear message to tech companies that we don't actually want you here, Um, you know, kind of both through policies like AB5 and then through the tax code, um, you know, like, okay, tech companies, you can stay, but like, we're going to make it very difficult. So now that you have a lot of remote employees, how do you think about your headquarters?
2: And as for both
1: of you, actually.
0: (laughs) Time Uh, to go
2: first. (laughs) (laughs) Like pointing at each other. Uh, Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I I do think, um, first of all, we were already starting to open up additional hubs. So we we, uh, set up an office in Atlanta a little over two years ago. We've got probably three, 400 people based um, out there. And so that's worked really well. So I think we were already in this process of diversifying outside of San Francisco. Um, remote, if, if nothing else, has just accelerated that process of like, okay, how do we keep spreading out? So I think what you'll see from us is we're going to have our presence in San Francisco, but we were mm-hmm. already thinking about how do you get access to this kind of like massive talent pool in the rest of the world? Um, and maybe this just changes the allocation. So instead of, Uh, you know, 3,000 people in San Francisco, maybe it's 2,000, and you find 1,000 people remote. And that's probably not long-term great for the city. Um, But, you know, practically speaking from a company perspective, at some point in your growth, you start branching out, and it kind of seems logical. I don't know, Ali, if you guys are thinking about it differently.
0: No, and I remember I talked to you just before, actually quite a bit before the pandemic, and you said, hey, no, actually, we're buying, and I was like, oh, interesting. Um, No, I mean, for us, I actually don't think it affects us that much. I mean, first, first of all, you know, we are, you know, just like you all over the, you know, map, right? There's, you know, big teams, huge teams in Europe, and then it's going to be a sizable team. It's already a sizable team in Asia, you know, Latin America and so on. Even in the United States, you know, we have mm-hmm. big teams in Dallas. We have pretty large teams in Arizona and New York and sort of. So, you know, you're already pretty distributed. I think we're uh, starting also new offices probably in Seattle. Um, when we've done the numbers with finance, how the taxes will affect us and the changes in San Francisco, I don't really quite see it, uh, affecting mm-hmm. us that badly yet. So I don't think there's going to be a huge change. Uh, I still think there's huge amount of talent here in Silicon Valley. And I don't think you can find that kind of concentrated level of talent anywhere else in the world. And they are also super hungry and ambitious, uh, and connected. So I do still think it's a really special place. Um, uh, having said that, we'll also hire people in other places, so I don't think it changes that much. And also, when it comes to COVID, our strategy is going to be uh, similar to what you said. You know, the employees are saying uh, we want to work from home, so we're going to allow them to work from home two, three days a week. Yeah. But the other thing, you know, I don't know if you saw what you saw in your numbers is the feeling of connectedness and the feeling of sense of belonging, like. Like everybody else, we did these surveys and the surveys came back like awesome. Everybody's more productive than before. Mm-hmm. They love the team. They love our communication. They love the company. It's like all great. But then over time we as we did the survey again and again and again, one stat that keeps deteriorating is the felt the sense of feeling connected to your team. It's this one mm-hmm. question that we asked. That one is decreasing over time. Yeah. And it's gone down twenty percentage points. I don't know. Did you have any 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 questions like that in your survey?
2: Yeah, um, we didn't have exactly that question, but we saw the same kind of trend, and and we we hear it from people of like, hey, are we allowed to get together? Like, is that okay? <laughs> like that sort of thing. And th- to me, that's like market market demand, right? Like the the employees want to to kind of hang out, and so uh, completely on the same page as Ali. I think the other thing we decided to do is we established some core days in the office. So we're and again, this is a plan. We'll we'll see how it holds up, but. Um, we're going to try to get together on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the office. And then the other three days are, are total flex days. So we'll just see how this evolves. But that's the thing that this pandemic has shown us is like, there are a lot of good things to working from home, but there are actually some good things in the office. And like going extreme on on either direction, seems seems pretty drastic. Like it actually seems like, can you take the pieces that you want from each of these and, and bring them together? And we'll see, maybe it's super messy. It's hard to do, but I think it's worth it for every company that, think actively about, well, what do you want to keep from this experience?
1: Yeah. So it's it's not, it's, it's it's not the old way and it's not the COVID way. It's some other way.
0: Yeah. I think it's closer to the old way though. I mean, for where we are landed at Databricks, it's cool. It's not that far away from the old way. I mean, what have we learned? We've learned that technology has evolved. It's awesome. Slack, Google docs, video, zoom, pretty effective. Uh, You know, meeting hygiene, notes, summaries, you know, all that's great, you know, and you should do that anyway. Yeah. Uh, And but people still want to get together. I mean, we we feel like we still want to have people close to an office so they can go in at least a couple of days a week. They can work from home two, three days if they want, uh, which means they can move a little bit further away from the office than before. So it does let them if they want to move to Napa or, you know, a little bit further out, they don't need to live right next to the office. That's totally cool. Uh, But we still want people to be able to come in and connect and bond, do the team meetings, the sort of core things that they need to do uh, to feel that they're part of a team. Uh, But then this thing that you go to your desk and then you put on your headphones and then you work nine to five at your desk with a bunch of background noise, that's probably going away. Uh, Mm -hmm. And the good news for us to do it this way... Yeah, the, the So the time thing, we...
1: together will be time together, I think, is the big difference, right? As opposed to exactly. time distracted with your headphones on. You'll actually exactly, go, like, exactly. let's get together this day. Okay. Yeah.
0: yeah. And the truth is, look, the truth also, I think Sounded probably has the same problem, which is we don't have office space. Uh, for. I mean, we've doubled the size of the company during this period, almost. Uh, and we did not double. <laughs> we didn't go during the pandemic and you know get a bunch of leases left and right. So... You know, we probably don't even have space for people uh, to come in and put their headphones on and work nine to five every day. Um, But the good news is if it shows that, you know, because these things, this thing, the feeling of connectedness slowly, it took a long time. Like only after six months or so, it started slowly showing up in the surveys. Uh, So there could be longitudinal effects that we don't see right now. And maybe we do want to even more go back to how it was before. This decision that Databricks took allows us to do that. We're keeping the optionality. But if we do the extremes, like Sanjit said, it would be stupid. One extreme would be, we're getting rid of all of our offices. We're just going completely remote. Everything is distributed. That's a one-way door. If it turns out that your teams are no longer crea- you know, creative, they feel like they're not bonding. By the way, new employees who joined during this time have a much worse experience. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so then, then what do you do then? It's very hard to go back through that one-way door. Um, and similarly, it doesn't make sense to exactly snap back to what we had before and pretend nothing has happened, and force everybody into their offices when people really want to be at home and they have a home office now, and, yeah. and you know the, their lives have changed.
2: The one thing I'll add is, you know, we had such a strong office culture that, in some ways, it almost created blinders for us from a talent recruiting perspective. We were prospecting for talent in the Bay Area, for example. And what we realize yeah. is the bigger we've gotten, the more we actually have a need for specialized talent. So we have some hardware products, for example, that require firmware engineering uh, expertise. And there's not a lot of firmware engineers in San Francisco proper. And folks you know, might want to commute from the South Bay. But really, if you want great firmware engineers, you should actually look in areas like San Diego, for example, where Qualcomm is mm-hmm. based. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting, right? And we never thought about like reaching out to people in San Diego because like they probably wouldn't want to work for a San Francisco centric company. Now, you know, because we have this uh, commitment to having remote employees, they're actually pretty open to it. And they're like, hey, that sounds pretty good. Maybe I come up to San Francisco every once in a while and meet the team. And you like, there's more openness to that. And so I'm really curious if two, three years from now, we're going to find that this was actually kind of, awesome in terms of opening our eyes, that there are other pockets of talent all over the place. And if you can find a way to get them into the company, you end up with better products. So that's that's something that I actually do think is going to be a net positive.
0: Yeah, competitive advantage, basically, that you have, yeah. because you can hire everywhere now, the, on the whole planet, essentially. Right. That's awesome. All right.
1: Okay. Well, we're at the top of the hour. So um, that was great, Sanja. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, and uh, thank you, Felicia and Jorge, for uh, getting us started today. And um, thank you, my uh, co-host, Ali and Mark. Um, and I hope you enjoyed this week's Boss Talk, and we will uh, see you next Tuesday. Thank you. Great.
0: Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, thanks Mark, man, everyone. Hey,
1: thanks, Andrew. That was hey. great. Thank you. Yep. Thank you.